The scripture reading for this morning is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 11. 1 Samuel chapter 11, and we'll be reading, first of all, the verses 1 to 11, and then focusing on the verses 12 to 15. And you'll be able to find that on page 322 of your pew Bible. So far in the life of Saul, King Saul, we see that he has been appointed to the position of kingship, to the office of kingship. He's been anointed by the prophet Samuel. And yet there are some rebels who have rejected his kingship, who despised him. And yet Saul went home and he held his peace, reigning from his home in Gibeah. And it's during these days of Saul's reign out of Gibeah that our passage comes. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to the territory of Israel. And then if there's no one to come save us, we will come out to you. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, What troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people. And they came out with one consent. When he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. And here we come to our text. Then the people said to Samuel, who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of 
peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So far the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the people of Israel have just come off of a great victory in our text today. They're full of joy and they're riding a high. One man shouts, we showed them. And another says, whoever doubted us. But suddenly the mood grows darker as they all shift and remember that there were some among them who did doubt them. In fact, there was a pretty big group of people who doubted them. Or rather, they doubted their king. And coming off of a pretty big victory, the way they feel right now, well, it's pretty much the same thing. You see, they've got a new enthusiasm for their king. It was King Saul, after all, that led them to this great victory over a terrible nation that was their neighbor to the east, just over the Jordan. Nahash, the Ammonite, a truly wicked king, the ruler of the kingdom of Ammon. The Ammonites had long been enemies of Israel, when actually they were a nation who ought to have been their friends. Why? Well, if you went way back, the two nations were actually somewhat related. Ben-Ami, who was the father of the nation of Ammon, he was the son of Lot. Lot was the nephew of Abraham, and Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel. But these descendants of Lot had mixed in with the local population, and as they did so, they had adopted their gods, their customs, and they had turned away from the God who had revealed himself to their forefather Lot and to his uncle Abraham. The Ammonites turned into a cruel and warlike nation, and they set themselves up against the chosen people of God. When Israel was released from slavery and was headed to the promised land, this should have been a reason for rejoicing for their distant brothers. But instead, they had chosen to block their way as the nation of Israel made their way towards the promised land. They had allied themselves with the enemies of Israel and they had tried to destroy them. And they've been their enemies ever since. Today we see them again reaching out their hands to strike and humiliate the people of Israel. But instead the Lord causes a huge role reversal. So we come to our theme for today. Under his chosen king, the Lord saves his people. We see first of all a humiliating challenge, then an overwhelming victory, and finally a kingdom renewal. The people of Ammon themselves would never have expected the outcome that we find in our passage today. In fact, they themselves had gone into battle full of confidence that there would be nothing that they would have to worry about. Their power, for the moment, was absolute compared to Israel. Could anyone really bring together this fractured nation, this scattered group of tribes and clans? So the people of Israel are uniting, are they? King Nahash thinks. Weaklings, easy targets. Let's show them how weak their king really is and maybe they'll give up this foolish idea before they can really join together. Humiliate their king and the people will shatter. You see, it wasn't for no reason that the people of Ammon went up against Jabesh Gilead. 
And it wasn't for no reason that it happened so soon after Saul was crowned king. If you remember, Saul was a Benjamite. And for the Benjamites, the city of Jabesh-Gilead was very important. Why? Well, Jabesh-Gilead and Shiloh were the two cities that were the former homes of all of the Benjamite wives who were captured after the disastrous civil war of Judges 20 to 21. A generation later, those bonds would still have remained. This was likely the former home of King Saul's mother. And so for King Nahash, Jabesh-Gilead wasn't just a target of opportunity. It wasn't just a city that was on his side of the Jordan River, which made it easy to attack and easy to capture. But this was a city with which he could make a statement against the people of God. And boy, was he ever interested in making that statement. He planned to humiliate this fresh new king in the eyes of all Israel and all the surrounding nations. Not only does he march up to and surround the city that's deeply important to the tribe of their new king, but he makes an impossible demand from them. He demands the right eyes. The idea here is that if they do give in, their right eyes would be the eyes that they would use in battle. If they were using bows and arrows, then they wouldn't be able to fire them anymore. If they were using other kinds of weaponry, their depth perception would be out. They would be completely useless. It's a demand that he knows the people won't accept. So what's the reason for it? He wants to bring disgrace. He wants to bring reproach on all of Israel. And to rub salt into the wound, he gives them the opportunity to send messengers throughout the land. If he had just wanted to conquer them, he could easily have done that. When he first rolled up to the gates, when he first came to Jabesh Gilead, the people of Jabesh Gilead, they weren't too worried about the attack. They came out and they immediately offered to make a covenant with him. This was something that was common with him. They would be conquered as a city-state under his rule. They would offer him tribute. They would give him money and young men for their armies. This was something that was done more often in this day. But Nahash wasn't interested in this. Nahash didn't even give them a chance to forget about the covenant that they had made with God. He didn't even give them a chance to forget about the covenant that they had with their king. Instead, he's just interested in making a statement, sending a message to the whole nation. He's saying, see, I'm not afraid of you. Do your worst. You know what? I'm going to park right here outside of your city. You can send out envoys wherever you want. Do your worst. I am not afraid of you. I'm going to not just destroy you, I'm going to humiliate you. Even if you are his tribe, his family relations, the ones who should be able to call on him in his time of need, your king can't save you, your God can't save you, I'm in control. You can really see the hand of the devil at work here. 
Here we see God revealing the next, next stage in his plan for the history of his people and his plan to bring together a people through whom he will bring his Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And here you can see the devil rising to the occasion against the people of God. The struggle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, which has been going on since the beginning of history, is once again rearing its head. The devil has set himself up against the people of God, and he tries to destroy them. And it seems pretty intimidating. As the great Reformation theologian Martin Luther said, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work as woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. They seem to be in a very precarious situation. Even their own treachery towards their king can't save them. And so they fall back once again on the people of God, asking them for help. Because though the power of the devil may be great, the power of our God is greater by far. And though his schemes can be complicated and varied, trying to trap and ensnare the people of God, God's plans will win out in the end. As Martin Luther goes on to say, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. No matter how powerful the devil may seem at the time and how confident he and his minions appear to us, God will advance his plan to redeem for himself a people from this world. Nothing can turn that aside. And here with Saul, we see that coming out once again. Here we see again how God advanced his plan of redemptive history as he snatches victory from the jaws of humiliation and defeat. And this brings us to our second point. Even though Nahash tried to humiliate the newly united nation under Israel, the people of God broke through. They won an overwhelming victory. And they were riding that high. We read here how they marched. They marched fiercely over the following days. He put the company into, he, he put the people into three companies, marched through the night, and they came in the midst of the camp in the morning watch. After this overwhelming victory against the Ammonites, their first thoughts on winning turned to the people who doubted King Saul. They see these people as the ones who have intentionally insulted Saul, and they assume that Saul's refusal to challenge the people who insulted him came from weakness. They assumed that he had wanted to centralize his power first. But Saul says no. Instead, he confirms his reason he knew that he didn't have to go after these people who had rebelled against him. If the Lord wanted him to be king over these people, the Lord would bring these people together under him. And indeed, he had. 
Nahash had looked at the people, and all he had seen was a fractured nation, a group of tribes and clans who had been bickering and fighting together, who hadn't acted in a united way in the days of the judges and who wouldn't do so now. But what he didn't realize was that their disunity lay in their refusal to recognize the Lord as their king, the Lord as the one who united them. Their disunity lay in the constant refrain of the book of Judges that every man did what was right in his own eyes. But what came, became clearly evident here is that when the Lord chooses to, He can unite His people. And what was for the enemy a reason to try, attack, and overwhelm the people of God became for God an opportunity to draw His people together under the rule of Saul. To move His people into the next stage of redemptive history. For Saul, a change came upon him, and the Lord takes hold of him. We saw last week how he was a fearful man. The fear of man loomed large in his soul. But when the Spirit of God came on him, this disappeared. As when he was first anointed by Saul and then was found in the company of the prophets, the Spirit once again rushes down on him. And once again he becomes like a new man. With iron resolve, he butchers his own oxen and he sends the pieces around Israel. Anyone who won't follow the king they pledged to support in defense of his people, they'll have their own oxen face the same fate. Can you see the timid Saul who hid among the equipment, the baggage of the Israelites rather than being appointed king doing this? This wasn't King Saul. This was the power of God. This was the Lord moving behind his people. And the evidence of this power pointed to something that Nahash hadn't counted on. Under the fractured surface of Israel lay that iron-hard core, the Lord himself. Their covenant God had laid claim to his people. While Saul was the king under God, God was their ultimate king. And so their covenant God was going to hold on to them. And Saul recognized this. And so when the people wanted to make this celebration of him and his, this a celebration of him, when they wanted to make this an opportunity to put to death any who opposed his rule, he said, no. No, it's the Lord, not me, who gave us the victory today. The Lord, our covenant God. See those capital letters again? The Lord has accomplished salvation for us today. The Lord was drawing his people together. What a testimony that is for us today, too. And what a reason for humility. We often do feel weak. We often do feel, as Christians in this world, like we don't measure up. The world around us, they say, Christianity, that's no longer as relevant for this country, for the country of Canada as it once was. 
It's no longer something that we need to lean on. We can throw aside those crutches. We don't need churches. We don't need God. We can plot our own way. We can plot our own course. But here, as God's people were reminded that it's in our moments of greatest weakness that God's light shines the brightest. We live in a world, we live in a country in which things seem to be getting darker and darker over the course of the days. But it's in the moments of greatest darkness that the light shines the brightest. The Spirit of God in these moments works in His people, strengthening feeble hands and weak knees. It's in the moments in which we seem the most overwhelmed that God lets His power be known to those who lean on Him. Think for a moment back in history to Jesus on the cross. If there was a dark moment in history, if there was a dark moment in history, this was the darkest. The devil thought that he had won. He believed he had struck a terrible blow against Christ. The people who only days before were trying to crown him king had now turned against him. People he had preached to, people he had healed, loved. People to whom he had only ever shown goodness were screaming at him, crucify him. Someone from his own beloved inner circle of disciples betrayed him. And now he was nailed to a cross, publicly humiliated, mocked and scorned. Was this not a dark hour? Would this not have been a reason for fear? But this was also the moment of his greatest victory. This was the moment of our greatest victory in Christ. In this moment, Jesus Christ conquered sin and the devil. In this moment, the devil was struck with the blow that he would not recover from. Now, this doesn't mean that every moment of every day will be a moment of victory for us. Christ doesn't tell us that we will be given the victory over every single obstacle in life, however much we may hear that from certain TV preachers. But it does mean that we can live our lives in light of the greatest victory that has ever been accomplished on our behalf. We can live with a certain future bought for us. And we can live in the knowledge that Jesus Christ has accomplished everything that we need. That in our darkest hours, we can lean on Him. And that He will work all things together for our greatest good, for our salvation. So in our moments of humiliation in life, we're encouraged to turn to the Lord. And in times when we succeed, we're reminded again to humbly turn to the Lord. We don't need to lord it over other people. 
We don't need to use this as a moment to put other people down. But rather we can accept it with humble gratitude because Jesus Christ is the one who ultimately gives us every good and perfect thing and every victory rescuing us from our moment of need. And this brings us to our final point, the kingdom renewal. At this moment of recognition where Saul has said, look, it's the Lord who's given us this victory. It's not me, it's not us as a people, but it's the Lord who has given us this victory. It's at this moment of recognition by Saul that the prophet and judge Samuel decides the appropriate time has come. Come, he says, let's go to Gilgal and let's renew the covenant, renew the kingdom there. It's because Saul has recognized that their covenant God, the Lord, has given their victory that Samuel takes this step. The people so long fractured have now once again been united under their king, their true king, God himself. And they recognize him as being the one who gave them success. Yes, this isn't ultimately a renewal of Saul's kingship, although that is included under the renewal of kingship. We see Saul being crowned again and the now formerly fractured but now united nations, united tribes, pardon me, acclaiming him once again as their king. But ultimately, this is a renewal of God's kingship. Their covenant Lord, Yahweh, the one who established a relationship with them and who laid a claim on them is the one who gave them a king. But Saul as the king who was given to them, was only ever a king under the greatest high king, the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords, God Almighty. We read in 1 Samuel 10 verse 1 how Samuel tells Saul, are you not being made king because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? He was the ultimate king. This kingdom was entrusted to him. When the people wanted a king, they had been trying to replace God as their king, to be more like the nations around them. This was a rejection of God as their king. And later on, when God appointed a king under him, their rejection of Saul as king was once again a rejection of the authority of God as their king. But now they were able to all come together. Notice the word all here. It unites them. Every single person now recognizes and rejoices in the kingship of Saul. Every single person now recognizes that they owe their victory and their very existence as a nation to their covenant Lord. And so they all gather together at Gilgal. Gilgal. The place where God had renewed his covenant with Israel so long ago after they first entered into the land again. Gilgal where the Lord once again publicly lays claim to his people under the banner of his kingship. And the people of God rejoiced greatly. The rejected king was now accepted and acknowledged by all. The king, God the king, who had placed him over them, was being celebrated as their God. 
the kingship of their earthly ruler and the kingship of their heavenly ruler became a reason for rejoicing. Today for us too, beloved, the kingship of our God, our covenant God, is a reason for rejoicing. All the more now that Jesus Christ is the one who has taken his place as the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Christ who is our salvation in a much greater way, in an eternal way. And when he returns at the end of all days again, it'll be a reason for rejoicing. But it's also a reason for sober reflection, especially as we look forward to the Lord's Supper this afternoon. Because, beloved, we're reminded that it's only the people of God who are under the banner of Christ our King who will share in this victory. If Christ has not yet been acknowledged as your King, look to Him. Don't wait for a better time. The hour is now. He's your king. But if you do know Christ to be your king, beloved of God, let us make every effort to rely on his kingship every moment of our days, even when we stand in great fear, even when the devil seems to be overwhelming his kingdom here on earth. Rely on his kingship each and every day. And let us make every effort to witness of his kingship to those who are around so that they too can stand by our side on that final day. So that they too can find comfort and assurance in this life under the king who rules over them. And so that they too on that final day can rejoice with us in his victory. Amen.